Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. In tonight's episode, we're welcoming Brandon Hodge. He's a collector, author, historian at mysteriousplanchet.com. How are you doing today, Brandon? Fantastic, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, been looking forward to this for a while. You know, there's been so much going on with uh, Ouija and spirit boards. A lot of people get that mixed up, and I think we should probably start with that to begin with. Yeah. Um, so, what is the planchette? Well, the planchette is my specialty. As you said, I, I curate, I like to say curate, uh, my site, uh, mysteriousplanchette.com, is sort of my public avenue for uh, the research and uh, history that I've done on the planchette, because unlike the Ouija, which everyone, you know, is pretty firmly embedded in pop culture, I think we can say that when we've got a, you know, a major uh, movie coming out uh, by that name, uh, unlike the Ouija and talking boards, the planchette has sort of been regulated to the dustbin of history. So I, uh, a, a few years back, as I got to know some of my compatriots, namely Robert Murch, who uh, is TalkingBoards.com, he's, he's the, you know, largely, widely regarded as the, the Ouija expert, um, I just started, you know, to become more and more aware. I'd always been fascinated by the, the these items, but I became more and more aware that just no one had ever championed them before, and I decided to take up that mantle. Uh, the planchette predates the Ouija by about 40 years, and uh, people are familiar with the planchette because it's the pointer on the Ouija board. That name has, has stayed and evolved uh, as the pointer on the Ouija board. But before that, it was an automatic writing device. It was larger. It was typically heart-shaped and usually about eight inches long, uh, eight inches in diameter or so, but roughly heart-shaped, lots of different heart and shield shapes. And um, it has, it's wheeled. Instead of having little pegs, it has two small casters on it, wheels on it. And then instead of a third wheel to roll around, the third wheel is a pencil, and that's usually at the point of the heart. And so rather than putting the smaller Ouija or talking board planchette on the board and pointing out the letters of the alphabet and numbers, the writing planchette would be placed on a large sheet of paper or on a tabletop, and everyone would likewise put their hands on it, like we're familiar with with talking boards, and then uh, start collaboratively creating um, spirit writing. So rather than pointing out letters and numbers, it would actually write out messages from the spirits. So where did it get its start? Like how did it, how did it come about? 
Well, it follows pretty closely in uh, in the footsteps or the, in the advent of the modern spiritualist movement. Most of your listeners are probably familiar that our, our modern conceptions of spiritualism begin in 1848 with the Fox sisters. Largely, there's a, there's a lot of contributing factors, but the Fox sisters are kind of the ones that are going to go sort of get ingrained in pop culture and go public uh, with this and, and turn it into really a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, so the Fox sisters establish communication with the spirits and start making unusual sounds, knockings and rappings in their Hydesville, New York home. And uh, so your most basic form of communication is just going to be an affirmative or negative sound. And so that's what happens. They start getting these knocks and they realize that they are displaying some intelligence. They can communicate with them. And so um, your most basic communication is going to be something along the lines in our modern conception of, you know, uh, knock once for yes, twice for no. It was slightly different back then, but it's the same concept. And so based on that foundation, uh, you have, uh, you're calling out questions, you know, were you murdered? Knock once for yes, twice for no. Are you male? You know, are you a man? No. Oh, are you a female? Yes. You know, so you just these, uh, these basic affirmations. And, um, that is quickly going to get refined at what we call alphabet calling, where people call the alphabet out in order to spell proper nouns, names, words, sentences. And it's not too long before the talking tables, the tipping tables, talking tables, tablas tornantes in, in France, um, they add a cooperative element to this where everyone's putting their hands on the table and realizing it will move mysteriously while everyone's touching it. And when those mysterious movements begin to establish the same sorts of spiritual knocks of communications, they then can call out the alphabet in the table. So all spirit communication devices come out of that very basic cooperative movement of the tables and um, and trying to refine uh, the, those movements. Alphabet calling was very tedious. You get about 240 characters an hour, which is less than two tweets, mind you. So it's, it's a very tedious process, and a lo- all of our earliest devices that will eventually lead to the talking board and the planchette come out of that, that table-tipping movement. And in the case of the planchette, are contemporaneous with it. People uh, are doing alphabet calling. They're, they've, got, they, they've got the alphabet. They've got the cooperative movement of the tables. And it was only a matter of time before someone put their hands on the, on a, decided they could they could cooperatively write out messages, and that occurs June tenth, eighteen fifty three, in France. Right. And do you think they had a purpose behind it? Like, were they, uh, as in, like, evil intent or good intent, or was it? Because um, uh, I mean, it's quite known that the uh, original um, t- talking boards, like the the Ouija, that was a um, kind of a board game, right? Well, it was. It was kept sort of nebulous. I mean, in, in all of these things have their roots largely. Now, offshoots, not so much. You see a lot of people trying to capitalize on the toy and the board game industry on, on the success of, of Ouija and others. But they all get their start with the spiritualist. In Berlin in 1853, within a, about a month of the Planchette's creation in France, you have Adolphus Wagner, who creates another cooperative moving alphabet spelling device he called the psychograph. He has a rival Hornug that uh Daniel Hornug that that creates uh the Emanuelector and these are two alphabet spelling devices that are way more complicated than the Ouija, but it's a, it's the same concept. You put your hands on these things and either the table tips and points out the letters or this device moves and points out letters. Um, everyone they're spiritualists that are experimenting, and how devoted they are to spiritualists. A lot of the times, it's, it's sort of scientists that are interested in the spiritualistic phenomenon. So it might be unfair to call them uh, necessarily devout spiritualists. But uh, they're they're trying to see what's behind this. They're creating these more expedient means, and um, and that's really what's behind it. Uh, initially, even the talking board has its origins well before the Ouija comes along. Uh, has its origins with with spiritualists that are using it to establish communications. How did it get so popular? 
Well, you know, it's it's funny to, to, to watch the the ebb and the flow of popularity of all of these devices over the years. Uh, Wagner himself and Hornug, his, his rival in Berlin, are actually riding the wave of the table-tipping phenomenon. So this wave sweeps from America, and we haven't ever identified its earliest origin. We know the Fox sisters claim the spirits were moving furniture. Oh, my God, look, the chair just moved. And at some point, you know, we just kind of dig deep back. And, you know, in the early 1850s, we start to see that people are all putting their hands on the table for this table tipping. That fad begins to sweep, first it sweeps across America. And a lot of these early devices are actually augmenting the tipping table. So in other words, for example, in, in America, the Isaac P. Spirit, uh, spiritual Telegraph Dial um, is a box sort of like a little clock, but instead of numbers, it has letters around the perimeter. And you put this on your table, and as your table tips back and forth, it's counterweighted, and you're pointing to the alphabet. So um, that's, you know, and, and they have various degrees of success. And, and, you know, the planchette is around from 1853. It sort of has this underground, spiritualist-only sort of cottage you know, so, sort of cottage manufacturing market uh, that caters directly for the spiritualist for about 15 years. What you need to really drive sales, we have found, is death. And not just death, but wholesale death. You need large amounts of people that are willing to try to break through the veil and get to the other side. Yeah. And planchettes are going to be the first to experience that that widespread calamity, if you will, with the Civil War. Because uh, as it closes in 1865, you'll note that by 1867, news of the planchette and its remarkable abilities to communicate with spirits uh, begins to bleed through into the popular press. And in 1868, it becomes a worldwide phenomenon. It literally becomes... The, the the next fad it becomes the hula hoop becomes the yo yo becomes the Furby of that of that Christmas season everybody's got to have one and there's just this explosion it goes from this cottage industry of of believers that are manufacturing these devices to shortages amongst scientific instrument makers because they're all building planchettes or they're all building the parts for planchettes and uh, and every books and well maybe not every bookstore but um, these things just sort of take over bookstores all over all over the country, predominantly in America and England. So we we see this trend repeat itself over the years. After the First World War, there was a huge explosion in, in planchettes and, and talking boards. After the Second World War, planchettes have kind of gone away, but the, the talking board really takes over. So after we see these worldwide conflicts or these, these great losses of life, people are looking for answers. And we find that for the most part, it maybe doesn't explain Weech's popularity, which I think we can lean on a little bit more toward the growth of the board game and parlor entertainment industry. Uh, but uh, in several cases, the popularity of these devices are driven by war and loss of life. You get into the Ouija board. That, that came along a little bit later, and what was the point of that? Like, how did that come along? Well, it's funny, you know, my partner, Robert Merge, always spar about this because, you know, he's the big Ouija expert. I've got a, a chip on my shoulder because planchettes never get any respect. You know, I'm like the Rod, Rodney Dangerfield of, of historical device researchers. And uh, and they come along, and, it, and it's funny because uh, they, they start, there's a few false starts, if you will. Uh, first of all, there's the early 1850s devices, these tabletop devices I've already described that are already pointing to they're using this cooperative movement, whether you're a believer or, or a non-believer, it's, it's still a cooperative movement, uh, to point to the alphabet. So we get very, very close. We even have mediums that have alphabet cards. So in other words, they've got a Ouija-like card on the table with the alphabet written out on it, and they're using a pencil to point to the different letters, waiting for a rap or knock to sound out to tell them which letter to be selected. So you get that close. You literally get a, a board or a card with the alphabet printed on it and someone moving their uh, a pencil over it, but the cooperative movement wasn't there. Uh, 
We do have some instances in the 1860s and the 1870s where people actually do put the planchette on an alphabet board. So this is going to be the earliest forms of talking boards. In 1876, we have a family that, that puts an alphabet on their table, and they're using this to, to communicate uh, with a dead loved one, using a dowel rod to kind of roll back and forth. So we have a lot of these sort of false starts, and we get very, very close for about 40 years, but it just never all comes together until 1886. Uh, we see out of Ohio, these reports start coming through with illustrations, which is very important. These re reports start coming through called the New Planchette. And the planchette now, with this wheeled, heart-shaped board, is being merged finally and kind of definitively with the, the alphabet card, with the talking board. And that's what they begin calling these things. And in 1886, by this time, the Associated Press has really caught on. It's a, this sort of thing happens again with the, we saw it with the Fox sisters, we see it with the planchette, the rise of cooperative news stories. Things don't stay local anymore. They go viral the same way we see things happen today on Facebook. And so uh, the news gets out. That story is reprinted over and over. And uh, we actually have uh, the W.S. Reed Toy Company makes an early thing they call the Witchboard and send this off to President Grover Cleveland of, uh, Cleveland as a gift at his White House wedding that year. But it's Charles Kennard along with E.C. Reich in Chestertown, Maryland, that um, that decide to you know put some of these together for sale, and eventually it's an idea that Charles Kennard is going to take to Baltimore with him and form the Kennard Novelty Company and begin producing the Ouija. How did they come up with the name? I know that I know a lot of people think it's We and Joff or German and French, but I that's that's not the real creation of the name. Yeah, yeah I would encourage you, you, you simply must have uh, my collaborator, Robert Murch, on the show, uh, because he could give you this this uh, this story in exhaustive detail. It's, it's, it's original research to him. Uh, I'll, I'll hit the highlights for you. Um, we have accounts, there are newspaper accounts in the 19, early 1900s where a lot of the initial investors in that company in the in the Kenner Novelty Company and the Ouija uh, manufacturing companies that uh, begin to spar publicly in the newspapers because there was a lot of bad blood by that point. Several of the founders had been booted from the company, and so there's a lot of contentiousness. And we're lucky that they did that. They start kind of airing their dirty laundry publicly. And we're lucky that they did that because through those accounts, we found out that the one responsible for naming the Ouija is a medium by the name of Helen Peters, who was an early investor in the company and uh, and related to some of these founders. And uh, as the account goes, she uh, asked the board what it should be called, and it spelled out O-U-I-J-A. And she asked what that meant, and it said, good luck. And... Um, We've never found any evidence that the word Ouija means good luck in any language, and so that did, you know, over the years, it, it, it started, you know, got conflated with things like we and jaw and German and French, uh, yes, yes, in other words, uh, and lots of other theories, but, you know, we can, from those who actually named it, we have the account of, of it naming itself. And there's an aspect that was actually a, a feminist writer by the name of Ouida, O-U-I-D-A, uh, who had kind of a cult of personality. She had a lot of fans. And a part of that account talks about Helen Peters wearing a necklace that had the word Ouija on it. We actually think, because we have evidence, that there were actually lockets of Ouida, the writer. And her signature has this sort of sweeping hook under it that could be interpreted as a J. So we think maybe she was wearing a Ouida pendant or a Ouida locket. And uh, because that is certainly mentioned as part of someone says, well, it says Ouija on your necklace. Were you thinking of that? But it's it's also important to think about how death was perceived back then in society. It was much different than how it is now. It certainly was, yes. Like uh, you know, because people used to take pictures of of their dead relatives and stuff, right, and with them, and right. 
Um, so they, so it wasn't unusual for this to become a little bit more mainstream back then. It wasn't necessarily thought of as evil. No, it certainly wasn't. I mean, you, you, it had its detractors. We have some evidence in the 1850s that the Bishop of Bavir in Paris kind of railed against spirit communication and, and the table-tipping fad there. So you do have sort of your old standby church authorities that, that will rail against it from the pulpit a little bit. And that's just normal. They'll rail against vegetarianism if you give them a chance. But um, it... It didn't. It certainly did not have. It, I mean, in the case of the in the case of the planchette, while it was initially thought of as a spirit communication device, when it explodes in in pop culture popularity, it's more. It's not exactly a toy. It's a thing. It's a parlor a parlor game. We'll say. I, I don't like to say toy. It would later be marketed. You know, largely the manufacturer would be taken over by the toy companies. But it's uh, it's marketed more of a parlor game, and the Ouija follows in, in those footsteps most certainly as uh, as family entertainment, as as a rollicking good time, and uh, you know in the age before radio and television, that's a that's a pretty attractive thing. I think the whole thing is that, you know fascinating the history and how how the use of um, talking devices have has kind of changed over the you know many many years. Where do you think we are today with it, Brandon? Well, it's funny. I mean, I want to give an anecdote that, that Bob and I like to share when we lecture together. And um, it's, it, it's, a funny, it's a funny story of perception, if you will, and where we are in our modern times. Because obviously, as, as we all know, and as I'm sure the listeners realize, some of them may themselves hold deep superstitions about the Ouija, that it's something not to be utilized, not to be touched. Uh, I often see this with ghost hunters that are very comfortable walking around deserted homes with their K2 meters and, and other devices waiting to establish communication, but at the merest mention of a talking board or Ouija, they're, they're ready to hang garlic around their necks and throw up the sign of the cross and ward it off like it's, like it's some vampiric soul sucker. And... Uh, we find, uh, and, and again, my compatriot Robert Murch, is, is really, he has done such a phenomenal job tracking that history. Um, and we see a lot of our modern knee-jerk reaction really traces back to those very innocuous scenes in The Exorcist, where we see uh, the soon-to-be-possessed young Linda Blair brings out the Ouija board and talks about speaking Cap Captain Howdy. Uh, we really feel that the, that the evidence sort of asserts that our modern conceptions of the Ouija board being a, a tool of the devil uh, that opens these doors that can't be closed can really be traced back to that movie. That's mm. Not to say that there were not people against it before then. But uh, the interesting uh, conundrum I like to bring up, this little anecdote, uh, Robert and I were on the East Coast, and we found this nice little antique town to go through. And we uh, we went to one shop, and the guy behind the counter, beautiful antique store, full of lots of old crap, uh, my favorite kind of antique store. And uh, he's telling a story about being on a ghost hunt. And apparently he's a, psych uh, a psychical researcher and, and does these paranormal hunts and such. And um, we kind of listen in, and he's got a captive audience, and we stroll through, and then... Merch walks up to him and says, so, do you have any Ouija boards? And the guy's face just blanches white, and he just starts railing against them. I would never, ever let a Ouija board in here. I do ghost hunts. I'm a professional. And if I ever saw one of those, i tell people to burn them, and they have to sprinkle salt on them, and they got to do this. they got to get rid of them. You don't know what you're messing with. And Bob like, is like, okay, okay. You know, Bob's got over 500 of these things sitting in his house. So, you know, he's never opened any doors he couldn't close. So Bob thanks him for his time and, and starts to head for the door very quickly. And I slid up right behind him and said, okay, so it's a, you know, Weech is a non-starter. Do you have any planchettes? And he says, well, what's a planchette? And I said, well, it's a heart-shaped automatic writing device used for spirit communications to, to draw out messages from the spirits. He goes, no, I don't have any, but they'll sound all right. <laughs> 
Now tell me what the difference is in a heart-shaped board that writes out the messages and the same thing on top of a wooden or cardboard or plastic Ouija that has the alphabet printed on it, made by a toy company. I mean, uh, it's, it's just a funny, funny paradox. It, I think, to me, that metaphor really, or that analogy of the word, really demonstrates the, the very real public fear that is embedded and ingrained itself in our modern consciousness. When, uh, you know, it's, it's just, if you're a believer, it's just a tool like any other tool. And uh, there's nothing inherently evil about a, a cardboard or, or wooden board with the alphabet printed on it. So what, what are your beliefs, Brandon? Do they work? Are, do, are they a form of spiritualization? Well, they, 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 they most certainly work. Now, how, how you want to attribute it that, of course, there's a, a number of beliefs. And I like to say that <laughs> yeah, I normally leave those questions of, of morality to higher moral authorities than myself. I, I feel like... Uh, that discussion of beliefs a little above my pay grade. I can say that I've had some really, uh, one particularly amazing experience with the talking board. Uh, we were at the Nelly House in uh, Gettysburg. And uh, we had a, about a four-hour long session where we got some really remarkable communications. And uh, there were some at the table that believed it was the Spirit's communication. There were skeptics at the table that believed it was all due to idiomotor response. Mm -hmm. In either case, and, you know, if it is idiomotor response, if we're skeptical, and, and I largely tend to be a skeptic, but, again, I, I don't spend too much time uh, thinking, thinking about that cosmology. But even if you're skeptical, and even if it is idiomotor response, when you have such clear communications and... Um, clear and I, I can't say accurate because we never followed up on the, on, on the information, but clear and cohesive information over the course of four hours that tells this really this amazing story that we, you know what we were the communications we were getting were saying we were talking to a nurse that died in 1868 she had you know nursed um, civil war soldiers in that house she gave names of some of these soldiers and how they died and her husband and how he died and other spirits that were in the room and some of their names and some didn't want to be named it was really really remarkable and there wasn't one person with their finger crammed down on the planchette shoving it from letter to letter to tell the story. It was a cooperative, and if you're a skeptic, a subconscious um, communication. And that, to me, might even be more amazing that the human mind is capable of that than the concept of spirits being able to come through to, from the other side. And so, do you believe it's dangerous then to use these boards and planchettes and things like that? I, I don't believe. I mean, I, I counter anyone who uh, who believes they're they're dangerous to, uh, particularly those that again, you know, paranormal researchers that walk around with K two meters and and other types of of communication boxes. It's no more dangerous than anything else. If you are a believer, I believe it's what you bring to it. Um, after we finished that four-hour session, we had a couple of gals get on the board who had the heebie-jeebies about Ouija. And I think this is a testament as well, because they, uh, the whole time we were using it, had, you know, they were, oh, God, oh, oh, creepy. And we weren't getting creepy communications. We were getting, I was a nurse, and I tended soldiers in the Civil War. Well, when we were done, they decided, uh, with great reluctance to, to try the board, and it spells out, I for, you know, like look behind you, and um, you know, I'm you know I'm gonna get you sort of stuff, and you know, really creepy, uh, vaguely threatening and mocking things. And you had people for four hours beforehand who came to it with an open mind and just received some some normal, if you want to call it normal, communications. But then those who were squeamish about it and thought that it was something that was evil, well, that's exactly what they got. Because their communications were threatening and, and you know, macabre. And, and, uh, and I mean, it, it freaked them out. And that's fair, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Just, if we're believers... 
did the did the nice spirit of the nurse and all the spirits that she said were attending on us in that room suddenly flee so a demon could come in and, and attend to these two teenage girls who took it over? Um, so, you, so you think they were getting what they wanted or that they created or something or just bringing, bringing you know popular conceptions of evil to it? Right. Where do you think that came from? Like, why did why did it become so evil? Like, because nowadays, like you said, there's ghost hunts. It's very commercial. It's popular. There's um, mediums on TV. There's everything that's kind of on a positive outlook. But there's when it comes to Ouija, like look at the new movie that came out or just recently, and uh, and how negative it's portrayed. Do you know like, right. why why does it hold on to such a negative um, image? Well, like I said, you know, Linda Blair spitting, spit, <laughs> the spitting split pea soup uh, had a big effect uh, when her head turned 360 degrees. Um, it had a big effect on the public consciousness. You had people, you know, leaving theaters in droves. They were so disgusted and, and shaken uh, by that movie. And uh, as that begins to get equated with the early scene in the movie where the Ouija board is, is sort of tacitly held responsible i think it it um i think it left a big impression and then it just sort of spreads you know bob does a good job of tracking all these different ouija stitions and stuff that that people have and uh it's a it's a curious thing it, it just it really is it's um it's hard to believe that a movie had solely had that um and there are a lot of factors that contribute to it but it uh it's just something that crept in, and it and it grew. It just grew the the, the deeper it crept in. Have you seen that uh, movie? I have not yet. It's funny. I've seen all the special features that, <laughs> that my friend is on, but uh, I, have, I have not yet had a chance to watch the movie itself. Yeah, yeah. I was a little disappointed, but I, I get that a lot. Uh, yeah, a lot of the response to it hasn't necessarily enabled me to run out and rent it immediately so. no and it didn't it didn't really it didn't even have the scare feature you know it didn't even freak you out it wasn't it wasn't terrifying either they were kind of missed on all the points i think but that's just me. <laughs> our guest tonight brandon hodge the subject the planchette we'll be back right after these words what surprises you most when um about people and when they find out about the history of these devices? Well, I think people don't realize they're as old as they are, whether it be the planchette or the talking board, um, nor its origins. I think largely it's seen as just a sort of board game that's been around for a while. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And when... I find that when I lecture, when I start to speak about the history of these devices, um, that people just uh, just don't realize that the Ouija board dates to the 1890s, the planchettes, first of all, they're surprised to find out what a planchette is, um, but that they, they date you know, from, the, from the 1860s, 1850s. Um, where, and and how, how it's all tied in together, how it's tied in with a movement in popular culture, because spiritualism was not only a religious movement. I dare say it was more a pop culture movement than a religious movement because the qualifications for membership, it wasn't like church denominations. It wasn't like Episcopalian or Methodist or Catholic. Uh, if you believed that it was possible that spirits might be communicating from the other side, um, that's that's the sole definition of what qualifies for spiritualism in the, in the modern conception. So, and in that case, I find that when I speak to a lot of the different paranormal outlets and and the conventions, the conferences, and such, that very few of them, though they are believers and though they spend all their free time or a lot of their free time performing ghost hunts and and things of this nature, don't realize that they're spiritualists, and uh, they're often surprised, you know, for me to put that label on them when, uh, you know, it, it has a very low threshold of belief for, for qualification to, you know, again, spiritualism was, they did try to centralize denominations, but for the most part, it was, uh, everyone was brought together by a, a very simply stated belief that the dead could communicate. Right. And so what are the, some of the craziest stories that you've uncovered? Oh, gosh. I mean, we've got... Um, We've got buried treasure is a popular one. Lots of lots of buried treasure, and I tend to not focus too much on the sensationalism of these stories. They they do tend to uh, sort of flare up briefly. I, t- I tend to go for the more general trends. But you know, we have talking board murders. Um, some of my favorites are, you know, in, in the turn of the century in London. One of the things that keeps the planchette popular there because. The talking board never gets a great foothold in, in England. It gets a little one. Um, but the planchette sort of reigned supreme there until, you know, sort of into the 1920s. And part of that is because in, in right around the turn of the century, there was a very sensational case, the, the Cavendish case, where the, we, the, the talking, sorry, excuse me, the, the planchette is passing messages to this widow to basically leave her estate to some of the mediums and such that are helping her communicate with her, her departed uh, husband. And so that was a very sensational trial. And you see a lot of that with, with fraudulent mediums over, over the years throughout history in, in general. You know, the whole, oh, your deceased husband wants you to leave your fortune to me. And, uh, you know, that is what it is. I, I, I think in many cases it, it did irreparable harm it gave a little maybe a little too much ammunition to to expose magicians like Houdini and Dunninger to uh, to really tear down spiritualism in the public eye and uh, I think that's unfortunate I don't think that belief is any more harmful in, except in those rare cases when it's used to to outright defraud somebody, but then again, there are examples of Christian ministers doing that in the news every other week. Uh, I don't um, see why holding those beliefs and participating in those religious practices uh, had such a big target on them. And uh, I, I never thought it was fair for uh, you know some of the exposer magicians to go after. Um, mediums. At the very least, even if you weren't a beginner, I mean, if you weren't a believer, you know, going to a seance, or, you know, it had to be a great night of entertainment, right? 
Right. You know, you pay your dollar, you go in, it's, you know, it's like seeing a movie. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, you know, and it brings comfort and hope to the believers. And how is that any different from a preacher on the pulpit who passes around the, uh, the offering tray at the end of his, uh, sermon? So, uh, I, I, I think spiritualism in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s in particular were, it was just unfairly cast. It was one thing to, to be defensive of your religion, but another to, to go so, you know, jaws to throat, uh, toward a segment of the population who, who believed it's, you know, I think it's kind of a beautiful belief uh, that the soul persists in the afterlife and, and can communicate with the living. I mean, it's, uh, not the worst thing in the world. You still have, you know, folks like the James Randi Foundation and stuff that actively seek out psychics and, and stuff. And, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Yeah. So, you now so you have quite a collection, I guess. So uh, some of the more interesting hi- historical significant things that you have? Well, uh, I do have far and away the, the most sizable collection of automatic writing planchettes, which can be seen on my site. And uh, I'm always adding to that. I'm looking at one right now. I mean, just sort of a day in the life of a collector. I've got uh, old newsprint on spiritualism coming in from the 1850s out of France. Uh, is a, has just arrived at my doorstep, and I can't wait to crack that package open. I've got a, a planchette, which was not on the record uh my research, that... Uh, came out of Philadelphia that just, uh, I opened it up just before we began talking and it's a beautiful specimen and has some markers that I think I'll be able to trace this device's evolution and see how it's tied to others that were manufactured about the same time, help me date it and everything. Um, so it, it's sort of a, a, a rotating, uh, uh, you know, sort of a rotating door of my, my favorites at the moment. Uh, just last week, some items of note. Um, I received a spirit writing slate out of San Francisco. Um, it's significant because it's engraved with, uh, and for those who aren't familiar, slate writing was another form uh, to acquire spirit writing. Uh, it was very popular in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, Henry Slade was the most famous medium of the slate writers. Uh, and it has sort of a spectacular fall from grace in London where uh, some of the magicians came out to expose him. And uh, he was able to flee and sort of continue his business. But uh, close behind him was Fred Evans. Fred Evans was a very popular slate writer and produced a beautiful book by J.J. Owen, Psychography, in 1893. And um, he was, you know, he's very popular. And, and the slate writing mediums, they would do one of two things. They would write on the slate as a form of automatic writing. And otherwise, they channel a spirit, they go into a trance, and they scribble out messages from the spirit on these school slates, like you see in antique stores. Or... Uh, more mysteriously, they would have multiple slates. They would show that they were blank on both sides. They would put a small piece of slate pencil, small piece of chalk or pencil, in between the slates, and they would bind two together. They'd mark them, too. Look, here's a big X. You can see this is, you know, here, put an X right here, sign your name. They'd mark them. They would close these things together, and they'd set them on the table, and you would start to hear writing. You'd start to hear, you know, from underneath the slate. And after a few minutes, they would take the slates apart, and the slates would just be covered in writing. Uh, and they would maintain that this writing was from the spirits. And I recently added uh, a slate that is engraved um, on its wooden edge um, from a seance performed for the Progressive so- uh, the Society for Progressive Spiritualists San Francisco on Easter Sunday, 1927, uh, writing gathered through the mediumship of Fred P. Evans. And so he that's a famous spiritualist. I mean, this is big news to even have an item uh, owned by, by Fred Evans, but it's, it's covered in spirit writing, which was preserved. The chalk writing was preserved by putting uh, someone at the, uh, the society put cellophane over it and tacked it to the slate. And so it's been preserved, and then they marked where it was received. And I documented some of these. I know that uh, there are several in Lilydale on, on display there at the Lilydale Museum. Um, there are some others, I believe, at Chesterfield. Uh, and I had documented some at both the College of Psychic Sciences in um, 
in London, as well as uh, the Beale Material Museum in Utrecht, Netherlands, uh, this past summer. And I never thought I would add one to my collection, but I, I did acquire one last week, and lo and behold, it's a Fred P. Evans slate, so that's a, a big deal. Um, another, probably the cornerstone of the mysterious Planchette collection, is an, is the earliest known spirit communication device that, that we have on record. And uh, it dates from 1855, and it's one of Dr. Robert Hare's spiritoscopes. And uh, what's interesting about this, it's, um, it's a tabletop device. It's a cast iron plate, uh, dial plate, with the, the alphabet in a ring around this cast iron dial, along with the letters and a few phrases. And it's on a board. It's mounted perpendicular to a wooden board that's on rollers. And as you roll it back and forth across the table, the dial turns and points to different letters. Now, it was invented not as a spirit communication device so much as it was invented to debunk spiritualists. Dr. Robert Hare was the equivalent of the 1840s, 1850s. He's Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you will. He was a big pop culture. He was sort of a, one of America. He was a chemist, and back then chemistry was the one, you know, the top science. Now it's physics. And in that day, he was the pop culture scientific authority. He was a very, very big name in America. And he retires, and he decides he's going to set out and debunk spiritualism scientifically once and for all. And he sits with famous medium Maria Hayden, who actually brought um, spiritualism to the UK in the, in the early 1850s. Um, he sits with a number of mediums, and he creates these test devices that he called spiritoscopes. Some of them were tables. They were these, these large tables, again, for table tipping, that would roll back and forth, and there'd be a dial attached to it. Those weren't very portable. We know there were at least two table devices that he has illustrated in his book. But he made some smaller test devices that were a little more portable, and these were his spiritoscopes. And we knew about them through the illustrations in his 1855 book, Spiritualism Scientifically Demonstrated. And one showed up uh, about a decade ago, and uh, uh, it was purchased uh, very cheaply, I believe, for a nickel or a quarter at an estate sale well over a decade ago, and, and pictures were sent around uh, and made their way through the collecting community. And, and a, few, a couple of years ago, when I was actually in Gettysburg, I was able to acquire that device. And uh, it's an incredible, not only a significant piece of spiritualism history, but uh, but pop culture history. And it's significant because Dr. Robert Hare became a believer in the course of setting out to defraud spiritualism. The results he got from these devices changed his mind. And uh, in his book, Spiritualism Scientifically Demonstrated, ended up not being a debunking. It ended up being supportive of, of spiritualism. And, uh, and I think that device to know the different mediums that had their hands on it and what it meant to pop culture at that time, the, the, the um, you know, to change the mind of such a, and, and I mean, it'd be the equivalent of Neil deGrasse Tyson coming public and saying, you know what, I did some equations, I talked to some other scientists and we proved it, heaven is real, and you're going to go there, and, uh, you know, next on Cosmos, we're going to talk about heaven. Hmm. And uh, that's kind of the the impact that book had. It was it was that big of a deal. Hmm. Can I ask a question, Brandon, please, yeah. about your the different planchettes you have? Because I note on your website you've got American ones that are different then from British ones. And I'm just thinking about the kind of the talking tables, Ouija, and language difficulties, and whether or not you've you've got um, an extensive or some examples of when Ouija has been translated in different languages. I know that oh, when, absolutely. We're, when we're doing paranormal yeah. investigations, everybody, you know, people will try and call out in, in the language that would have been around at the time, etc. Um, so I'm just wondering, because there's nothing on your site, so I was just interested. Yes, absolutely. We, uh, I mean, even now in, in the modern day, you can buy Spanish, Spanish and French language. We just, just right off the top of my head, I know those are those are currently available for purchase. I do have a French talking board. Uh, it's a handmade device. I don't know what period it dates to, um, but uh, you know, luckily. For the most part, with the exceptions of maybe Cyrillic and some of the Middle Eastern languages, 
we have a common alphabet for the most part. And um, so that makes it pretty easy. You can spell out messages in, in a number of different languages with the same board. Uh, with the planchette, that certainly certainly wouldn't have an impact because you're writing out. And there are lots of examples of of, uh, of writing in other languages that have, that have been published. And not only that, there are examples of spirit communications, written spirit communications, received through devices in languages that the medium purported to not know or understand. But they would record these messages letter by letter and and figure out, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is Finnish. You know, <laughs> or, you know, oh, oh God, you know, and, and so... Uh, those things obviously put a stronger weighting onto the um, away from the odometer effect uh, because obviously if somebody's reported not to know that language then clearly that's not something that's a subconscious movement absolutely and you know and I have you know you asked about a counter I mean don't get me wrong even though I I, I, I try to walk the fence but I, I, I really lean probably more skeptic than otherwise um, even then I've read some just absolutely mind-boggling uh, accounts and you know particularly when you know a lot of people say well Robert Hare you know he was 72 his eyesight was failing these mediums pulled one over on him well that might be the case and it might be the case that, that William Crooks was having an affair with with Florence Cook uh, in, 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 in his uh, in his support of the Katie King phenomenon but that wasn't universal you've got scientists that you know that held the ankles of the fox sisters and couldn't explain where the noises were coming from you have remarkable communications that you know it's not like they had their smartphones under the table and were googling stuff i mean i i know all the the tricks that were that were out there um it, it, because if somebody wants to be fraudulent they can certainly do that but even then, there are there are some amazing accounts of that that no that no tricks can account account for, and uh, so there is certainly some remarkable historical evidence, particularly with the Society for Psychical Research. I mean, a lot. I mean, most of what they do is performed under test conditions, and even then, you read some stuff that's just wow. Like there's got to be something to that. And uh, again, I I don't spend too much time trying to judge it one way or the other but uh, I, I certainly have read some remarkable stuff and, and the foreign language stuff is, is one of those and you know sure the argument could be made well that medium know, you know, knew that language you know their grandmother spoke French or whatever but man there's an awful lot of them and, and you know we have some modern phenomenon hell right now in the news we've got a uh, 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 what is it? A four-year-old boy that claims he was a, a, a middle-aged black woman who died in a fire, and uh, you know, I mean, and here's this four-year-old kid going, "No, my name is," and you know, I, I, I haven't read that article more closely, but uh, you know, I skimmed through it, and I was like, "Wow, like that really stands some investigation," you know. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of unexplained phenomenon out there, and and uh, it's not all about spook shows in the dark. I mean, there's really some some fascinating phenomenon as part of this human experience, and I'm glad to spend my time studying it. And so I I have to ask, so who 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 has made these boards? Like when you and the planchettes and things, like who actually made them, create, created them, not not designed them, but actually when you go out and get one, and a lot of the planchettes you have, who who's actually made them? Well, really three different phases of manufacture. Uh, 1854 is the earliest account we have that there was a cabinet maker in Paris that was making planchettes for the, the trade there. And the planchette, when it was invented, was actually, the spirit said, hey, go to the other room and get a basket, and turn it upside down and stick a pencil through it, and then everybody put your hands on. I mean, the spirits were actually like, you know, I mean, technically the spirits invented it. This was the message that was received, not through the planchette, but through table wrapping. And we're like, all right, let's speed this up. Go in there and get a basket. We're going to, you know, put a pencil in it. And uh, that gets refined to the board. We don't know who exactly did that. We just know it happened. Um, and in the earliest days, until what I call the first great craze, in the earliest days, it's scientific instrument makers and spiritualists. 
Um, we have Thomas Welton, who is a believer. He published several books on spiritualism. His wife was a crystal gazer. He had no seership capability himself, but he was an artificial limb manufacturer. And uh, and so he put his skills to woodwork, and he made planchettes and published a lot of those. Elliot Brothers is a famous um, and, and highly collectible manufacturer of scientific instrument makers uh, or instruments such as uh, pantographs and um, other other devices, you know, astrolabes and such. And they manufactured them. And uh, that's interesting because the pantograph, and for those who aren't familiar, the pantograph is that little crisscrossed arrangement. It's basically an old duplication machine. It's a, it's a crisscross arrangement of slats uh, with a pencil on one end, and you would trace things out, and it would enlarge things on another piece of paper. So the, this thing, you know, this we call it a crane's bill, and it's got these little wheeled slats that enable you to to make copies of things. It's a very old technology, and uh, the pantograph wheels become planchette wheels. And my favorite account, my favorite historical account of planchettes, is a, is was written by a scientist who's complaining. That all of the scientific he, that he needs a piece of scientific apparatus constructed, but he can't find anyone to make it for him because they're all too busy making pantograph wheels, and they're all too busy making pantograph wheels because of the explosion in planchette popularity. They can't keep up with demand, and they're the people that manufacture the wheels for them. And it's it's funny because he goes from. Uh, from scientific instrument maker, he, he, he tells me, he's like, I went to so-and-so on 4th Street, and they were too busy, and I went here, and Volley's like, what's going on? And it's just a really fascinating account. So for the earliest scientific instrument makers, when the popularity explodes, booksellers, stationers become the manufacturers. Kirby and Company becomes the largest manufacturer. Guys like Bangs Williams uh, moves to New York and, and uh, puts his stationary business to the side while he manufactures his insulated planchettes. So in the first great explosion, almost exclusively, the, the Philadelphia model that I just got in from 1868 is, uh, excuse me, uh, publisher J.W. Pitcher out of Philadelphia. And so largely they are booksellers and stationers. After the first craze, and when we get closer to Ouija coming around, they're still made as a cottage industry by spiritualists, but also um, toy manufacturers begin to slowly take over. And uh, you'll see the planchette, the, the more popular the Ouija gets, the less popular uh, the planchette gets. And uh, before too long, it's almost exclusively made by toy manufacturers in Great Britain. Right. I think it, Cat Valley and... You know, Chad Valley, Gletham Games, uh, you know, some of these different companies, and their quality tends to decline. They're, you know, kind of making these to put on Gamage's shelves and, and such. I guess it's not something you come across e- either, like, pretty easily. Like, you just don't go out and find it in old, you know, thrift shops and stuff like that. You just, it's not something you find, is it? How I wish. No, I mean, Alan, to be honest with you, it's a full time job. Uh, I, I spend easily as much uh, working on collecting and research as I do. And I'm, I own two retail shops here in Austin. I've got a toy store and a candy store. and I probably spend more hours a week maintaining my network uh, as I do running my shops. And, um, you know, you've got to keep an eye on all the various online auction houses. Uh, I have dealers uh, on four continents. And... Uh, you know, uh, it's just a con- it's just constant communication. You know, keep making sure that people haven't dropped off the hook, that, uh, chasing down leads. Um, it's it's a it's a full time job, and I'm in Texas, so uh, you know, I think the 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 center of Planchette's popularity was at Galveston here, and all those got wiped away, wiped off the island in the 1900 storm. So uh, I'm not going to have a lot of luck. We're just randomly finding a device in, in a thrift store, and a lot of those end up online and in various auction houses and stuff in any case. So. Yeah, it's probably something people didn't... It seems like it would be a lot of fear of these things, so they wouldn't necessarily keep them around either. And you know, and we hope not destroy them. What's your biggest achievement to date, do you think? Boy, that's a tough one, Alan. <laughs> um... 
I'll say the thing I'm most proud of right now. I mean, I, I'm most proud of bringing light back to these plants, just to even be able to have these conversations in public about a device that I've cared for for a very long time and, and has sort of been in the shadows. It's, it's nice to know that, um, that I'm able to educate people about them and, and, and kind of bring them, as I said earlier, out of the dustbin of history. But uh, I think right now the thing I'm most looking forward to, the thing I'm most proud, is, uh, most proud of, is uh, filmmaker Ronnie Thomas has produced a short film on myself and my collection. Ronnie Thomas is sort of the mad genius behind the Midnight Archive, which is, uh, I believe, midnightarchive.org. And uh, he's produced, uh, we filmed it a few months ago, and I've seen the early cuts of it. He produced this just absolutely stunning 10-minute short film on my collection and and sort of the things that motivate and drive me to to collect it. And and he's done some amazing work, so you don't have to wait for me. He um, He's done a lot of things uh, with a lot of collectors, particularly in collaboration with the Morbid Anatomy Museum in New York, who I've done some work with. And uh, to see that film, to, to finally see my collection and myself portrayed the way I always hoped I would be portrayed, uh, I think is uh, I'm really proud of that as a testament to the work I've done. And uh, you know, I'm still young, so I've got a lot of a lot of work to do ahead of me. Um, but I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of the work I put in to IAPSOP.com. I know that's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's the <laughs> International Association for the Preservation of Spiritualist and Occult Periodicals. And our mission is simply the digital preservation of spiritualist and occult periodicals. And IAPSOP.com has millions of pages of preserved books um, and and periodicals on you know old newspapers uh, on spiritualism and the occult. And it's uh, an effort that we can't seem to get libraries and archives and other institutions to turn their efforts toward. So we're this kind of underground guerrilla organization that are just trying to preserve things at all costs. And uh, I'm really proud of that work. I'm really proud to be involved in it and be a board member um, on that to contribute uh, what little I can to those massive, massive digital archives so that researchers all over the world can, can have uh, access to that. So how do people get a hold of you, and if they want to contact you about uh, planchettes or uh, speaking boards? And I certainly encourage them. If they've got anything they have questions about, please snap some pictures and, and email me. Uh, my most public avenue is my site, mysteriousplanchette.com, and Mysterious Planchette tends to be the moniker for most of my public endeavors. Uh, I'm in, I have a public page on Facebook, which is Brandon Hodge, mysteriousplanchette.com. Uh, probably my favorite social media outlet is Instagram, where I'm at Mysterious Planchette. And uh, I pop up on Twitter here now and again as uh, at Planchette says. But really, uh, my site has a, has a blog, but um, you, can contact, you can get everything through my main site, MysteriousPlanchette.com, including find links to my Facebook page and, and uh, links to email. And I encourage any listeners that have any questions about anything that has an alphabet on it <laughs> that might that might be a spirit communication device. Um, we are making new discoveries every week. It's it's amazing. Just when we think we know everything and we're ready to write the definitive book, here comes another email with a new picture of something we've never seen before, and it's uh, it 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 just never gets old. I, I love doing the work. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Okay, well, we'll have all these links put up on our website, and we'll. Uh, Uh, get that all up and uh, thank you very much for joining us thank you so much for having me and let me talk about my passion you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests hosts or shows go to www.houseofmystery.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me yeah good night this has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. HouseofMystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.